Hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My, my name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. And it's good to be with you this morning. It's good to see you, even though we're a little dark. It's a little dark in here. Um, the response to the word of God being read right there was a little different than it was in the first service, just to let you know. Uh, we started out things a little crazy this morning, so the scripture was read, and someone passed out right in the middle of the hallway, and thump. Now, that should be at all of our responses to when the word of God is read, so I don't know why, why you get, didn't respond that way, but um, I'll tell you what, that, that threw my sermon off in the first sermon, so I'm just going to tell you, all right? So you guys came to the right service today, all right? Um, we do want to welcome you. Uh, for those of you just joining us, we are in a series that we're studying. We're calling it Liturgy, Why We Do What We Do. And we're literally breaking down our service, our order of service on Sunday, and saying, why do we do this thing? Why do we do that? We want you to be able to tell your guests. We want you to understand why we do what we do. And we want you to be able to teach your children why we do what we do. And what we saw last week was uh, from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, that um, our worship is meant to be holy and acceptable to God, that it should be reasonable or rational. It should make sense, and it should tell the gospel story and not another story each and every week. That the apostle strictly warns us against conforming our worship practices to what suits our fancies, right? We all have fancies. We all like a certain style of music or we like, we like it real chill or we like it really intense or we like it real loud or real quiet or we like it real informal or real formal. But we're not to let our fancies, our desires shape our worship. He said, do not be conformed to this world. And that means, that, wor that word world there means this age or uh, this culture, but be transformed by the renewal of our mind. So our worship is meant to be transformational. It's meant to be countercultural. It's meant to shape us in a way that's different from the ways that our culture is trying to shape us. Now the idea here is that God is kind of going one way and our culture is going another way, right? Our age Every age, doesn't matter if you're born 1,500 years ago or 500 years ago or you're born today, every age is going its own way. And sometimes that is contrary to the way that God wants a culture or a people to go. Now, this is nothing new for us. God told the prophet Isaiah 2,900, something like that, years ago in the 55th chapter of the book of Isaiah, said this, listen, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him when he is near. Listen, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man forsake his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. We hear there's a, a way that seems right into a man. They're going this way. They're to forsake that wickedness, forsake those thoughts, forsake that way and follow God. Listen, that God may have compassion on him that he will abundantly pardon. Listen, here's what God says. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declare the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Okay, so God, here's what God says. I want people, or people need to, seek me and forsake their ways, right? He says, his thoughts are not our, our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts and his ways are higher than our ways. Now listen, this should make sense to us. I don't think it does in this culture, but it should make sense to us. If God is real, and by that I mean definitionally, God is all-seeing, all-knowing. He's the source of everything, right? He is, let's just say, he is in the heavens. He, he can see down on 
everything that exists. His perspective then is eternal. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. That's what it means to be God. So doesn't it make sense that God's thoughts, God's understanding, God's ways would be different from ours, right? Every parent should say yes, because when their child tries to say, my way is the best, and the parents are trying to figure out a way to communicate, I have a bigger perspective than you, right? I realize what's going to happen when you consume that much sugar, for my sake and yours. No, no, I'll be fine, I'll be fine, right? And if you ever give into it, because you just want to be that, you know, oh, I'm just tired of fighting, here, now we're like, ooh, my stomach, I don't know what's happening. Yeah, strange phenomenon, the consumption of sugar, right? Now, that's a, that's a silly example. Multiply that times eternity. And that's the difference between our perspective and God's perspective. Right? So, one of the purposes of Sunday morning is to straighten us out. Listen, all of us come in here with crooked thoughts with crooked ways, with crooked loves, with crooked desires. And in our own crookedness, we often want God to honor our crookedness, honor our perspective, to align himself with our thoughts and our desires and our wishes. This is how I feel. God, I want you to affirm my feelings. In fact, this is one of the current, the main primary dogmas in our current culture today. Since American culture, by and large, no longer believes in universal truth, that means things are true no matter what perspective you have on them, there's things that are absolutely true. We now believe that everyone has the right to create their own truth, and therefore no one has the right to critique someone else or to say someone else's view or beliefs or desires or loves or behavior is wrong. The pseudo-virtue of our day is now living in line with your version of the truth. You can call it, I'm just being me, you be you. This is my perspective, you can have your perspective. This is my truth, you can have your truth. And this is what our culture says is good and virtuous. As long as you have your own truth and you're living in line with your truth, nobody has any right to say anything to you. Now here's the problem. First off, this is completely contrary to a biblical worldview and Christian worldview. But this would make our Sunday gathering almost incomprehensible to people that are bathed in that worldview because here we walk into a Sunday morning living our truth and expecting God to do what our culture does and affirm our desires, affirm, affirm our thoughts, affirm our feelings, affirm our choices. And God thunders from his word, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. We, we think, woo, God must be mad at those wicked folk. Just goes right past our head because we, there's nothing, we ain't, we're not wicked. Mm -mm. Must be someone else. And we probably have a picture in our mind who that someone else is. But to be clear, when God thunders from his word, forsake your wickedness, he isn't just calling the secularists or the atheists or the jihadists to forsake their ways and turn to the Lord. He's not just calling the LGBTQ person to forsake their ways. He's speaking to all of us, from the good old country boy to the homeschooling mom. We all have our own ways that are not God's ways. We all have our own crooked thoughts that are not God's thoughts. We all have our forms of wickedness, whether it takes the form of pride and arrogance and know-it-allness, or it takes the, whatever other form. But we all have our own wickedness that we must forsake 
if we're going to worship God rightly. Now, Paul makes this perfectly clear in Romans chapter three. None is righteous. Wait, wait, wait. No, not one. Wait, no one understands. Wait, wait, wait. No one seeks for God. Wait, wait. All have turned aside. What? Together, they have become worthless. Why? As you move away from God's order and God's rule, you become literally worthless. God is the center of all reality, and the farther you get away from him, the more worthless you get. Literally. No one does good, Paul says. No, not even one. Paul here is quoting or paraphrasing from Psalm 14, 1 through 3. He's teaching what we call, what we've characterized as the doctrine of total depravity of man. Now, he's not saying that every person is completely incapable of doing anything good. Anyone can help an old lady across the road. Anyone has the potential to tell the truth. But none of us have the potential to do that infinitely, forever, without sin. And none of us, or all of us, let's say this, all of us are incapable of pursuing God, worshiping God rightly, without God first coming and pursuing us. Okay? Every single one of us is in need of redemption and restoration from God, and God must come after us first. God must take the first step towards us if we're to be saved. Paul says it like this in Ephesians. Every person before they believe in Jesus Christ is dead in their trespasses and sins. That means we're spiritually dead to God, unable to seek after God. But what does God do to spiritually dead people? This is what he says. Quote, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. What does this tell us? God always makes the first move in our salvation. We're dead on the table, right? God, we're dead on the table. God expects nothing of a spiritually dead person. Why? Because they're, in, they're incapable of doing anything, right? So what does God do first? He breathes into them the breath of life, the spiritual breath of life, and they come alive, all right? Now, we're about to see, in the call to worship, there's three specific reasons why we do a call to worship each week, okay? I'm gonna go through each, and each of them at, in, in turn here. Number one, in the call of worship, God initiates our relationship with him. In the call to worship, God makes the first move, or God reminds us that he always makes the first move. That we were spiritually dead, unable to move toward him, so he comes to us in Jesus. He literally left heaven's throne and it became incarnated, put on flesh, and dwelled among us. Not only that, but God sends his word. This is older than you are, right? This is older than you. God sent this before you were sent into the world. So this came before you. So God not only sent Jesus 2,000 years ago, he also sent us his word, and he also has sent you personally, the Holy Spirit, to awaken your cold, dead hearts to his grace and kindness, right? So this is the good news of the gospel, that God always makes the first move. No one seeks after God. If you seek after God, guess what he says? It's because God was seeking after you. No one loves God. It's because God loved you first. God always makes the first move, okay? Now, at Sacred City, we believe that this reality should actually shape our liturgy on Sunday morning. It should shape what we do week in and week out. So first, we saw last week in the pastoral welcome, we hear that Jesus surprises us and actually welcomes struggling saints and sinners into the gathering, There's no call to put on a mask and act like you're holier than thou and clean yourself up before you come into the presence of God. Jesus welcomes us just as we are, but here's an important caveat. He welcomes us as we are, but he loves us too much to leave us where we are. 
And so as we come in as struggling saints and broken sinners, we're welcomed in and then we have a call to worship. This call to worship, God calls us to put our eyes on him. So first thing the call of worship does is it shows us that God takes the initiative toward us. The second thing the call of worship does is it calls us to take our eyes off of ourselves and put it up on him. Think about that. We are not here trying to get God's attention. Many people think that. And they, they operate from a pagan understanding of worship and a pagan understanding of the gods. If you go to the Old Testament, there's some fascinating passages with a prophet. And, and, and there's this duel between the, the real prophets and the false prophets. And the false prophets were trying to get the gods attention always through their behavior, through their performance. They started cutting themselves and doing all kinds of different things. This is what paganism always does. I'm trying to get God's attention. I'm trying to get the universe's attention. I'm trying to get some good karma going on my side. My behavior is going to change what the gods do. I'm trying to get the gods' attention to get some favor. Right? Rightly, this is hilarious. It happens, and, and Elijah's sitting there going, um, do it harder. <laughs> Maybe he's going to the bathroom. He might be in the bathroom. Maybe he's asleep. Meanwhile, Elijah's pouring water on his altar. He's drenching it in water. He's like, We'll just let the real God, we'll let the real God respond. And he just says, hey, God, show up, show out. <laughs> While they're over there cutting themselves. This is the difference between the real worship of the real God and false worship. False worship is all about us trying to get his attention. Real worship is about God getting our attention, us responding to what he's told us to do. God is here. Right away, when we hear the call to worship on Sunday morning, God is here inviting us to let go of our preoccupations, to let go of our concerns of life, to let go of all of our issues for the next hour and a half and focus our attention on him. That's what the call to worship, the call to worship is God saying to us, Oh, right? I, I, I joked in the first service that it, it's, we could call this squirrel theology. If you have squirrel theology, if you've ever heard of this, I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but you're driving down the road, right? You're driving down the road and you see that squirrel, whoa, 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 and then it just stops. And it's looking back, looking forward, looking back, looking forward. Can't make a decision. What's going on, right? It's distracted. And then it's... <laughs> and the next day, squirrel pancake on the side of the road, right? In the middle of the road. What happens? Distracted, distracted. Now, this is how I feel most of the week, most of my life. This is how I come in on Sunday morning. Most of the time, I don't pop out of bed going, ooh, can't wait to worship God today. Let's go. Most of the time, I'm, oh, I'm tired. Oh, my back hurts. Oh, I got, I got these issues. And I'm thinking about what's going on in Afghanistan. And I'm thinking about what's going on in our country. And I'm thinking about what's going on in the lives of the people of our church and, and in my kids and in my wife and in all the stuff that I've got going. And I'm just distracted all the time, right? I'm distracted all the time. And I come into the call to worship and God says, right here, bro. And I go, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This is why we're about to see some of the benefits of the call to worship. This is one of the reasons you can come in as distracted as you want, as frustrated as you want, and you most of the time, when you get your eyes on God, you leave with a fresh perspective. You leave feeling better than you did when you came in, right? Because you get your, your eyes off of yourself and on to God. See, God himself is the center of all reality, and we were created by him to worship him and enjoy him forever. So the call to worship is meant to awaken us to that reality each week that you've been thinking about your problems. You've been thinking about yourself. You've been thinking about your concerns. You've been thinking about your plans all week long. But when you enter into God's presence, your focus should move away from yourself and on to God. Now, this is good for us to do. Christians, 
Oftentimes, the more you think about, now here's the lie. Here's the lie the devil tells us. That problem, you just need to think about it more. You can figure it out. But in reality, the more you think about your insecurities, the more you think about your issues, the more you think about your fears, the bigger they become and the smaller your God becomes. Now, not in reality. You can't shrink the almighty God. But in your lived experience, in your lived reality, when your problems are this big, right, God seems this small most of the time. However, when you come in and you get your eyes off of yourself for a moment or an hour and a half or however long it is, and you get a glimpse of a really big God, your problems become really small. One glimpse of the almighty God, one glimpse dispels a thousand fears. One glimpse of the almighty God dispels a thousand fears. So we have in the call to worship, God initiates our relationship with him. Two, in the call to worship, God calls us to put our eyes on him. And three, in the call to worship, God invites us in to his presence. Now listen, what does it feel like to come into the presence of a really big God? <laughs> Scary, all right? Yeah. We should ask ourselves that. If God is really who he says he is, what does it feel like to enter his presence? Well, I think there's going to be two things that we get specifically from the presence of God and the presence of God is meant to do for us. One, I'm going to just, and I'm going to break it down for you. One, God's presence is meant to give us assurance of salvation. And two, our assurance of salvation is meant to create white hot worship. That's what's meant to happen. Now I want you to open up your Bible to Psalm 91. If you've got it, or your app. Now, I know it'll be up on the screen, but I'd like you to do it because you can highlight your Bible when you see something good or if I say anything that makes sense to you, you can write it in the past if you need to or something like that. So it's good to have your own Bible open. <clears throat> Again, I said, the call to worship is an invitation from God to dwell into his presence, to come into his presence. Look at Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High. So we're talking about coming into the presence of God. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Now listen. Abide in the, will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Now, if you're in a difficult situation and you're there by yourself, right? You you you're going to experience a lot of fears. You're going to experience a lot of insecurities. But if you're there and you're in the shadow of somebody who's almighty, little brothers, little brothers, little sisters, did you ever go and get your big brother and your big sister when you're having a problem on the trip, on the playground? Now, what was happening is you were dwelling in the shadow of your big brother. And all of a sudden you got a lot more confident, didn't you? Most of the time. I, I remember fighting many times on the sake of my brother, right? My brother, actually, we were about the same size. Be honest, right? He was not dwelling in it, but I was way meaner. <laughs> way meaner. So he'd just be like, sick him. Tasmanian devil, right? Now, what, what's going on? Now, this is kind of a silly example again but we we're meant to see that the presence of God is meant to do something for us. That the psalmist here is, I'm dwelling in the shadow of the Almighty. The Almighty One. Almighty, all-powerful, can do anything. Nothing can stop Him. I'm in, the sh I'm in His shadow. He's with me. Now, what's this meant to do for us? Keep reading. I will say to the Lord, first off, we see this. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. So we see already 
entering into the presence and a response of worship. But keep reading. Now he's going to start talking about what God's going to do here. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler, that the almighty God will protect you against your enemies, the, the tricks of the enemy, and that from deadly pestilence, that he will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. He's protecting. You will not fear the terror of the night. The terror of the night. If you've ever had anxiety wake you up in the middle of the night, you know what the terrors of the night are. Your heart rate increases. Your mind grafts onto like every worst case scenario you could possibly think of. You're thinking about your children. You're thinking about the world. You're thinking about your finances. You're thinking about burglars. You're thinking about on and on and on and on and go. And you, and, and, and sleep is the furthest thing from your mind. It's the thing you want most but you can't grab it. The psalmist says here, entering into the presence of God will deliver us from the fear of the terrors of night. When we're dwelling in the shadow of the Almighty. Why? If I believe I'm in the shadow of the Almighty, what could any of those things possibly do to me? Keep reading nor the arrow that flies by day. Violence. Won't be afraid of violence. Nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness. Nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side. Ten thousand at your right hand. But it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. What's he saying here? Death will surround you. Lots of violence, lots of death, but you are protected because, verse 9, you have made the Lord your dwelling place. The Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he hold, holds fast to me in love... I will deliver him. God here is promising as we cling to him in faith, he will deliver us. That God says, I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. Listen to this. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. God's presence is meant to give us an assurance of our salvation. When we are called into the presence of God, God's presence is meant to dispel a thousand fears because we have an assurance of salvation. Here we see, he lists all of his fears, or many of his fears, the schemes of his enemies, the terrors of night, the violence that happens during the day, pestilence and plague, the reality that death is all around him. Did you know that just in the day when the psalmist was written, the, the death rate was 100%? Did you know the death rate today is still 100%? None of us get off this globe alive. Well, two of us, actually, if we talk biblically speaking, did, right? But no one else does. The realities of death are always around us. Trouble, pestilence, all these different things, they're pressing in on him and tempting him to fear, but the shadow of his great and glorious and almighty God is dispelling those fears. God promises to be our shelter from these fears, to assure us of our certain salvation. Now, listen, let me be clear. It doesn't mean, as some people quote this Bible verse, it doesn't mean that we cannot get sick or we cannot experience loss. 
or we cannot get a deadly virus. That's not what this is teaching us. And Jesus, in fact, dispelled that faulty man-centered interpretation when the devil himself used it and said, hey, hey, get up there and throw yourself off the, off the temple because angels are gonna re- rescue you before you hit the ground. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me. No, it means that no matter what we go through, God will be with us. We're in his shadow. He's protecting us. He will never leave us or forsake us. He will satisfy and save us. It's for our salvation, he promises. Now, Paul says something very similar in Romans chapter eight, verses 31 through 39. God's presence is meant to assure us of our salvation. Turn to Romans chapter eight, verses 31 now listen, here, here's the reality. We see the psalmist facing real life, dangers, fears, terrors, pestilence, viruses, all this stuff is around him. How, what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to live in light of, of this bro, the brokenness of creation around me? Well, the psalmist says, get into the presence of God, get under the shadow of his wing. Paul says something very similar here, and he just says it like this. When we're in the midst of the fight, we're in the midst of the battle, when we're in the midst of the violence, what we need to know is that if God be for us, who can be against us? That's what we need to know. If I'm in the shadow of the almighty God, okay, I'm cool with this. I'm okay. I think he can handle whatever it is that I'm gonna experience. But many of us, actually, how many of us, we say something like this. Well, if God is for us, then why am I going through this? Isn't this where our mind always goes? If God is for us, why are we experiencing such difficulty? Paul answers that question for us in the text. And here, he doesn't just talk about the almighty God and dwelling in the shadow. No, no, no. He takes us to the place where we can see God's protective grace in a greater and greater way, and that is the cross of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 32. Well, I'll start in 31. What shall we say to these things? Here's what we say, folks. If God is for us, who can be against us? That's what we could say. A thousand shall fall at my side, 10,000 at my right hand, but it will not come nigh unto me. If God be for us, who can be against us? Now keep keeps going. Look at this. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him, with Jesus, graciously give us all things? Now, this is what Paul's doing here. He's teaching us. Remember, we were spiritually dead. We were spiritually lifeless. God had to take the first move on us, right? We were so broken and so sinful that nothing but the life of the Son of God could save us from our sins. That's how destitute we were. And yet, God did not hold back in giving us what we needed, even though it was his own son, the precious blood of his own son. It was his greatest gift he could possibly give us. He did not hold back. He gave it to us. He sent Jesus to live and die for us. Now, what Paul does is Paul takes a gospel-centered logic to say, well, if he, give a, if he gave us his greatest gift, the thing that costed him more than anything else, well, then why would he forsake us in giving us all the easier things? All the lesser things. Why won't he give us all things? Of course he will. That's the logic Paul is using here. He's saying Jesus has justified us, declared us not guilty. There is now no more condemnation in Christ Jesus. More than that, though, Jesus was raised and is seated at the right hand of God, making intercession for us. If anybody has something against us, it would be Jesus. Jesus paid the debt right? Jesus paid, the, paid the, the cost of our salvation. So if anybody has something against us, it would be Jesus. But he says, no, no, no. Jesus justified you, but he's also your intercessor, intercessor now. He's at the right hand of God pleading your case. 
That means he's praying for us. He's standing in the gap for us. He's pleading our case. So look what Paul says. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. Jesus won't ever condemn you. There's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. More than that, who was raised for our justification? Who is at the right hand of God? Who is indeed interceding for us? Listen, Jesus, we are standing, Jesus is standing in the presence of the Almighty God and we are in Christ. We are literally under the shadow of the Almighty God. We are in the presence of God right now. What does Paul say? Who is in, verse 35, therefore, here, he doesn't say therefore, because of this reality, you are in Christ Christ died for your sins. Christ was rose, risen for your sins. Christ has ascended to the right hand of God and now he's pleading, he's pleading with the Father on your behalf and you are in Christ and Christ is in the presence of God. We are under the shadow of the Almighty. So what does that mean for us in our day-to-day life in this world? Look what it means. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who's gonna break that bond? Who's going to get us out of the presence of God? Who's going to get us out from under the shadow of the Almighty God? Who's going to do it? List some stuff, Paul. (laughs) Shout tribulation. No. Shout distress. No. Shout persecution. No. Shout famine. No. Shall nakedness? No. Shall danger? No. Shall sword? No. Now, let me just say if you're a Christian, you should actually expect these things to enter your life. Tribulation, distress, persecution, financial difficulties, danger, the threat of violence were present in the life of Jesus. They were a present reality for him. They were a present reality for his disciples. And they have been a present reality in the lives of Christians for the the past 2,000 years of church history. Now, the last few hundred years in our country have been blessed with relative bliss compared to most of church history. However, that hard-fought religious freedom is under great threat today and may not last very much longer. As our country continues to push God out of every area of public life, God will do what he promises to do in in his word, and that is hand us over to our own sins and the terrors of a secular totalitarian state. If our country does not repent and respond to the call to worship, return to God, we will reap what we've sown. It has happened in the Roman Empire. It has happened in all across Europe. It has happened in Germany. It's happened in Russia, Czechoslovakia, China, and many other kingdoms. Democracy and religious freedom are a rare and precious gift, and we should not, we should not, we should take any threat against them to be, to be serious. But our ultimate hope is not in peace and tranquility and religious freedom. We are not promised safety in this life. We're promised something much greater than personal comfort. Look what Paul says in verse 36. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. This is normal. When the Bible was written, when Paul was speaking, he's saying, guys, we're being killed for the Christian faith right now. We're being slaughtered like sheep. Christians in Afghanistan right now are clinging to this verse, being annihilated, being destroyed, being raped and tormented and beheaded and beaten for their Christian faith right now. We live in an absurd time. We live in a time where we've forgotten our Christian heritage and we think that everybody just thinks like Western people, that freedom and pluralism is all good for society. We are a unique, we are a unique country. 
But in the midst, whether, now let me just say this too. I think we do have great threats to our religious freedom and our democracy as a whole in our society today. And we should, we, sh- we, we, we have to be proactively working against that, both, both philosophically, biblically, pushing our country back to worship Jesus Christ. That's what we should do. But we should not lose sight of the forest for the trees, is the saying. What do I mean by that? When this Bible was written, so many Christians have this pessimistic view of human history. We're just on a downward slide. Things are gonna get worse and 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 worse. And then finally, God's just gonna hit recycle on the thing. It's just so bad. I don't have that view of biblical history. I don't have that view of human history. I think when I read the Bible that I see a lot of reason for hope and a lot of reason for optimism. In fact, 2,000 years ago, there were only 12 of us. (laughs) Paul's like, hey, We're being killed every day. We're being slaughtered every day. That was a dark day in human history. Hey guys, remember just a few years ago, they killed the son of God. Paul's like, and I was agreeing with it. That's a dark time in human history. Compared compared to that, we're living almost in the promised land. Compared to that, there's billions of Christians across this globe. There's millions of churches preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ today. We are not in the darkest days of human history. We could be on the, we could be on the brink of the greatest revival our society has ever seen. We could be. There's reason for hope. So Paul goes on and says this. We're being killed all the day long. We're guarded sleep to be certain. But look at this. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Yeah. Oh, Paul. I wish, I, I wish we could be more like Paul. Listen, they're killing us every day and we're conquering them through our death. <laughs> that gives me goosebumps, Paul. The, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You can kill us, but you can't stop us. Because why? Paul goes on. Paul's saying, here's the logic. Jesus Christ has already saved us. We're already in the presence of God. What can they do to us? I'm dwelling in the shelter of the Almighty right now. And so he's about to preach. Look what he says. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Man! Listen. At the center of creation is a loving God. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. The Holy Spirit is the personification of the love that exists between the Father and the Son. Why are we so focused on love? Why is love the meaning of life? Because God is love. At the center of creation is God and is love. Now, we were created by that Trinitarian God to get in on that, to know and enjoy that type of love forever that humble, self-giving, self-forgetful time kind of love. And, but when God made Adam and Eve, they got to, and they got to enjoy that love firsthand. However, one of God's created beings, Satan, desired God's throne and rebelled against him. He instituted a coup in heaven and tried to take God's throne. God thwarted that rebellion but allowed Satan and his evil spirits to continue to exist. Now, this is the problem of evil. Many of us say, why would God do that? God had plans to use that evil and use Satan's evil deeds against him to show us the depth of God's love for his creation. What happened? God allowed Satan and us sinners to crucify the Son of God. Satan crucified the Son of God, and in that crucifixion, God flipped the whole script and defeated death itself. 
That, and we see the love of God clear, the clearest we could possibly see the, God, the love of God. We don't see it when we go to the Grand Canyon or the mountains or Hawaii and all the beauty of God's creation does not show us the love of God. What shows us the love of God perfectly clear is the death and resurrection of the Son of God. So what does Jesus do? We know what Jesus does. Jesus lives the perfect life that we failed to to live, perfectly pleasing the Father in our place. Then Jesus does the unimaginable. He absorbs the wrath of God that we deserve for our many sins on the cross, taking the full wrath of God and turning it away from us forever. Through his sinless life, his substitutionary death, his victorious resurrection, and his ascension back to the right hand of the Father, where he sends the Holy Spirit, the personification of love, but the personification of love of God between the Father and Son, he sends that into our hearts. Jesus purchases for us our total salvation. He seals the deal and guarantees for us the eternal love of God that we were made for. This is what makes us more than conquerors. Nothing can take the love of God from us. And listen, here's what I said. When we are assured of salvation, when we know that we're saved because of the work of Jesus, we're not wishy-washy about that. Assurance of salvation creates white-hot worship. That's why Paul goes off there in verse 38 and just says, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Death cannot separate us from the love of God because Jesus beat death for us. Life cannot separate us from the love of God because Jesus lived perfectly for us. Angels cannot separate us from the love of God because Jesus defeated Satan and all of his demons. Rulers cannot separate us from the love of God because Jesus reigns in heaven and does whatever he wishes and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord of lords and King of kings. Our present struggles cannot separate us from the love of God because the Holy Spirit is in us. The future cannot separate us from the love of God because God holds the future in his hands. Listen, what does this mean for us? If you are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, there is nothing in all of creation that is able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So when we begin our services with a call to worship. That is your chance to respond to that, to God's one-way redemptive love in a way that is appropriate, heartfelt, impassioned. And we're saying, God, I praise you for being my creator. But more than that, I praise you for being my redeemer. See, God calls us in to worship him. He he commands us to do it. It is our duty, but it's also our delight. It's what we get to do. We rightly respond to our creator and our gracious redeemer. We take our eyes off ourselves and we put them on our God and king. Last thing before I close, go to Psalm 100, the scripture that I had read this morning. God's presence is meant to give us an assurance of salvation and assurance of salvation is meant to create white hot worship. This is what the psalmist says. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. All the earth. First off, can we just take a second and say thank God that he wants joyful worship? Not somber worship, not white knuckled obedience, just like a grin and bear it, right? Joyful worship right? Keep going. Serve the Lord with gladness. Gladness. What a God. Listen, y'all, I want you to be happy. That's what he's saying. (laughs) Joyful worship, serve me with gladness. I wish lots of people would get the memo about this. (laughs) Come into his presence with singing. 
rarely, you know, I don't know, you sing at good things, right? You sing when you're happy. You sing when you're joyful, right? Come into his presence with singing. Know, look, that the Lord, he is God. God-centered, eyes off ourself. It is he who made us. We are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. We respond to his voice. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Amen? Amen. That's what we're here to do this morning. That's what the call of worship invites us in to do every single week. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for being a God who takes the initiative with us. I thank you for being a God who's big enough that you can say, get your eyes on me, and that's actually a good thing for us because when you are big in our mind, our problems seem small. I thank you for calling us to worship you and invite you into your presence that we get to dwell in the shadow of your wings. We get to be right next to you, Father. I thank you for assuring us our salvation and creating in us white-hot worship. I pray that that happened in every heart, in every mind, in every soul today. Father, we are crooked sticks, and we ask you to straighten us out. Straighten us out through your word. Straighten us out through the blood of your son. But as we get to come to your table this morning, I pray that we would have joyful hearts. I pray that we would worship you with gladness this morning, that you brought in suffering saints and sinners and you've redeemed us through the blood of the lamb and you've assured us of our salvation and you've invited us into your presence and now we get to sit down with you at your table. You've prepared a meal for us, Father, and we get to come and we get to eat that meal together with our brothers and sisters in Christ. So we worship you with gladness this morning. Jesus, This is what you did. You prepared a table for your disciples in the midst of their enemies on the night that you were betrayed and the night before you were going to be crucified. You took the bread and you broke it and you said, this is my body broken for you, for for them. And you took the cup and you said, this this wine here is the cup of the new covenant. it, It represents the blood that would be shed on the cross that would cover their sins. That meal of fellowship was to be shared as often as they come together to remember and proclaim your death and your resurrection. And so we do that today. We come open-handed and we ask you to feed us and we thank you for sitting down with us in this meal together and giving us these brothers and sisters that we can worship you together with. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.